Welcome to the first episode of How Did You Get Here, a Korea in Maize and Blue podcast series produced by the NAM Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Dr. Rory Walsh, the NAM Center's resident lecturer, researcher, and podcaster, and leader of our undergraduate research fellows program. In this series, we'll interview Korean studies scholars from various disciplines to discover their path into academia. I'm happy to introduce our first guest, Dr. Angela Yoon-Jung McLean. Welcome to the show, Dr. McLean. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here. Dr. McLean is a sociologist whose research interests include international and forced migration, law and society, transnational and global sociology, social movements, and Asian and Asian American studies. She holds degrees from Wellesley College, Harvard University, and the University of California at San Diego, and is currently working on her first book, entitled Politics of Refugee Reception in South Korea, Liberal Supranational Norms and Restrictive Domestic Institutions. I am also joined by our two undergraduate research fellows, Nini Landwer and Jackie Cho. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, thank you. It's great to have you both with us. Uh, Nini Landwer started their college years thinking they wanted to be the quintessential frustrated artist, but found that lacked a certain satisfaction, namely from asking the question, why? So they decided to switch it up in pursuit of a degree in international studies with a focus in comparative culture and identity, mainly studying Korea. Their interests these days center on gender identity and the racial constructs in Korea. Thank you, Nini. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm so excited. And Jackie Cho is a junior studying international studies with a focus in international security, norms, and cooperation, and minoring in Asian languages and cultures focusing on Korea. As a NAM fellow, Jackie is planning to research the internal politics of Chebol conglomerates in South Korea, and her main interests lie in domestic and international relations and legal systems. It's a pleasure to have you here, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Would you like to get us started? Yes. Okay. So the first topic that we wanted to cover was, do you see the path of your research as stemming from formative experiences you had as a young person? Yeah, absolutely. So my primary areas of research, as Dr. Walsh has generously introduced, include international migration, Asian and Asian American studies, and law and society, among others. And I think this is because I myself am a 1.5 generation immigrant from an Asian country who had to navigate the immigration law upon arriving in the United States. So... Growing up, I've always been interested in sociological and political topics. Well, at the time, I didn't know they were sociological or political. You know, I've been always been interested in topics surrounding human mobility, such as, you know, why people move. How do migrants like myself integrate into the new host society, how their lives are affected by the host society and its laws and policies, and of course, the struggle of defining one's identity as an immigrant, right? Especially as a second or 1.5 generation immigrants. To touch on something you mentioned, the 1.5 generation immigrants, being a second generation immigrant myself, I was wondering if you could build on that concept. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a sociological concept. To explain, we have to step back. So first generation immigrants are the people who are foreign born, who immigrated as an adult. So this would be like my mother who came to the United States with me and my brother as an adult when she was in her 40s, right? But 1.5 generation immigrants are the people who are foreign born, but who 
immigrated as a child or an early teen. So like myself, so typically 1.5 gen immigrants, because they moved during their formative years, they experience some sort of identity issues involving the old and new cultures and traditions. And second generation like yourself, Jackie, are the people whose parents are born born, but they themselves are born in the United States. Thank you for expanding on that. Of course. So Dr. McLean, now we've introduced some of your formative young life experience. Now moving on to the introduction of your educational time. How did you spend your time as an undergraduate? Yeah, so I received my undergraduate education at Wellesley College. It's a private all-women's liberal arts college located in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So there, although I was interested in international migration, I didn't know that I was going to study it back then when I was in college. So at Wellesley, I majored in American studies with a concentration in Asian American studies and East Asian studies with a concentration in Japanese, actually, not Korean, but Japanese. Because at the time, I don't think Wellesley offered a major in Korean. And I was always very fascinated with the Japanese language. So double majoring in these two interdisciplinary studies was very interesting because in a way it helped me to kind of see the connection between the two separate but very linked worlds. But I mainly studied literature and language in both disciplines, not sociology. So one day I would be reading and analyzing some of the canonical Asian American literature in my Asian American lit class. And on another day, I would be like reading and translating The Tale of Genji. It's a classic Japanese literature written back in um, the 11th century Japan. So my college experience was very interesting in that regard. So while I was exposed to the studies of Asian America and Asia in college, it was all through the studies of literature and not sociology, but my interest in the region was definitely there. That's really interesting how you can see now how your earlier experiences color your current research, but it it wasn't a straight line. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't. Another thing we wanted to build on based on your undergraduate experience was being abroad in Japan. Did that kind of segue you into the sociology aspect of your research or was it kind of something that you found after like in between your undergrad and graduate school? That's an excellent question. I should also mention that I did study abroad in Japan at Japan Women's University and at Waseda University in Tokyo for one year during my junior year. So it was a one-year total immersion program where I was encouraged to speak in Japanese all the time. And I loved my time there. I still think about it fondly. And as you can imagine, as a 21-year-old, like fascinated in the Japanese language, the experience was very, very cool. But like you said, Jackie, yeah, I got to take more courses on Japanese slash East Asian culture, politics, and society while I was abroad, which definitely expanded my academic interests beyond just literature and language. So you took a year off from a women's college to go to a foreign women's college. (laughs) Absolutely. There were sister schools. That's lovely. I was wondering if there was a connection between them. Uh And then we, Wellesley would send two women to Japan Women's University and AWU would do the same. So it was a nice exchange that benefited both schools, I think. Another thing coming from me personally, I love the idea of studying abroad and it's something that I do want to get to do, whether it's now or sometime later in my life. Studying abroad, is that something you see very character building or was it kind of just like something you decide to do more like on a whim based on your major? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you can do it, I would highly encourage you to do it. I thought about it for a long time, <laughs> so it wasn't on a whim. But my primary goal was. To learn Japanese, and I was determined to be fluent in Japanese at the time. And besides learning the language, I think just exposing yourself to another culture that you're not really familiar with. It was my first time living in Japan during my total immersion program. It was a time of great personal growth, becoming an adult, <laughs> becoming totally independent in a foreign country. So, in a way, that was character building, but also, you know, expanding my academic curiosity. Right. So, I would encourage undergraduates to experience that if you can. Yeah. So. You had your undergrad experience and had this experience abroad, and your mind started to change. And at which point did you go to grad school? Did you go straight after undergrad? Yes, but not for my PhD. <laughs> I went. I went straight to grad school to get my master's, actually, in regional studies, East Asia, at Harvard University. I'm not sure if I would encourage <laughs> every undergraduate student to go straight to a master's program unless they know for sure what they want to do with a degree afterwards. I certainly didn't know <laughs> what I wanted to do after graduating from my master's program, but when I started at Harvard, I just knew I wanted to learn more about East Asia. Actually, it turned out to be great because it was at Harvard where I got a chance to study Korea more in depth. I got to take. Korean history classes, politics classes, and that really impacted me. And studying Korea led me to a job in Washington D.C., where I worked at two major think tanks that aimed to promote U.S.-Korea slash U.S.-Asia relations. And there, I got to do some really cool stuff. You know, I got to develop and organize all sorts of international programs and policy dialogues between. Academics and policymakers, and government officials, and I even got to travel to Korea and Japan a few times a year for the job, which was really fun. So I didn't go straight to grad school to do my PhD, but doing a master's definitely helped to establish my entry-level career in DC. So if you're, I know that Jackie and. Are both international studies majors? If you're interested and have passion for policy-oriented careers, I think DC is a great place to be. Start your internships and kind of navigate through the world of DC. Yeah, that's actually really cool that you worked in think tanks in DC because I guess something that I've done in my like more underclassman years at Michigan was I was actually in a think tank here, obviously on a smaller scale. It was like foreign policy and stuff, and that actually did get me really interested in my major. Kind of like how you were saying, it got you more interested in like Korea, and you got to have a more integrative experience with it. So I think that's really cool that you got to work in DC after your graduate. Yeah, I think it's a great place to be for young, you know, policy-oriented individuals, and so I, I, I highly encourage that internships in DC and then maybe work. So you said this was a time of great personal growth for you, leaving undergrad, going to Japan, and spending time in Washington D.C. So, as a Korean Korean American, what did this do for your personal identity? As a Korean American, I always had this hankering to learn more about 
Korea, <laughs> where my parents are from. And because I was exposed to East Asian studies since I was young, it was kind of a natural path for me. I never really doubted that I would do anything else. So I, I always knew that I wanted to do something related to Japan or Korea. It was a natural path. And as for my identity, you know, I think I don't think it affected me at all. I mean, I didn't struggle. <laughs> When you initially in undergrad chose to study Japan, was that mostly because of access? Was it just easier to study Japan or, or do you feel drawn to, to the study of Japan as well? You know, I was exposed to the Japanese language at an earlier Mm -hmm. um, phase of my life. So since middle school, actually, because my grandparents, who are Korean, they grew up during the end of the colonial times. And so they were able to understand and speak and really read fluently Japanese. And so they would talk to each other in Japanese. In front of me was kind of their secret language. I would be really curious to know what they were talking about. <laughs> And so I guess, yeah, my exposure to Japanese began at an earlier age. And I just thought as a child that the language sounded really pretty. And if you study Korean, and if you were exposed to any kind of Japanese, that you would know Japanese and Korean have similar grammar, yeah. syntax. Of course, if you learn more, they diverge. So in the beginning, I found a lot of familiarity in the Japanese language because I was already fluent in Korean. So yeah, so when I entered college, I just took Japanese to in, in, in effort and hope to perfect it. Getting to know a little bit more about you and like your journey through undergrad, studying abroad, then grad school, and then eventually going to work in D.C. Was there any point, I guess, before you decided to get to go for your Ph.D. where you were hesitant to start, I guess, the research process and instead stay in D.C. or I guess, working in general? Yeah, I struggled with it. I thought about staying in D.C. I really liked my job. But at the same time, I thought, well, if I don't start my Ph.D. now, I'll never do it. <laughs> of course, Ph.D. gives you a little bit more freedom in terms of what you would want to like to study. And so although... Yes, I wavered and I thought about it a lot. I ultimately chose to, to get more education. When I was younger, I actually, I wanted to be a PhD. When I was like, even in like elementary school, I thought that was so cool. But now, like as I've grown up and as you mentioned that it's like a very hard decision to like commit to more education like that, I'm like realizing that that is really hard because it was kind of just like a dream or like something that I wanted to do. But now like seeing that you've, especially how you've taken the time to go and have several academic experiences and had professional working experience, I really respect that about you, that you were willing to go through the whole process and complete it. Yeah, thank you. It definitely wasn't an easy decision. And I don't think there's no wrong way to pursue your passion and dreams. A lot of my friends who ended up in DC, you know, continued working. They are, you know, doing similar things, but just in a different way, different platform. 
now that we're kind of getting into more of like your research and your doctorate degree, I know in the intro at the very beginning, Rory briefly mentioned what your research topics were and your main talking points. But would you care to reiterate that or go into a little bit more depth about what you research? Yeah, for sure. So for my PhD dissertation, which I'm now in the process of turning into a book manuscript, I look at the treatment and protection or lack thereof of refugees and asylum seekers in South Korea. So Asia in general is known to be the most resistant part of the world when it comes to refugee protection. There are only a few countries in Asia that are signatories to of the um, international refugee law. And those that have adopted the law, like Korea, host very small number of refugees compared to other developed countries in the West with comparable you know, political, economic, and social capacities. So one of the goals of this project is to explore why that is and how the, the domestic process of internalizing international norms like the international refugee law looks like in practice. Right? So I look at various actors who are involved in making Korea's refugee regime, including the bureaucracy, the judiciary, politicians, civil society groups, and the media. So from your research and all of the amazing political information that you've gathered, what is it that you found that people most misunderstand about South Korea? It's not necessarily based on my research, but I think some people still think Korea is a racially and ethnically a homogenous country. And sure, relatively speaking, it is less diverse in its racial and ethnic makeup compared to, say, the United States. But there are over two million foreign residents in South Korea today, which is about four to five percent of the total Korean population. So with the gradual growth in foreign population over the past two decades or so, the Korean public perspectives on who a Korean person is, is also changing, right? It used to be that the majority of Koreans firmly believed all Korean people, no matter where they are, are connected by this bloodline, the definitive Korean bloodline. But this is not really the case anymore. With the rise in foreign population inside Korea. And of course, well, needless to say, how easily we can all kind of connect with others around the world, thanks to all sorts of different technology. This Korean ethnic national identity has surely undergone significant changes. Now, with respect to my research on refugees in particular, the public opinion towards refugees in general and especially when it comes to this question, should Korea accept more refugees? Public opinion towards that is still negative, right? But, you know, again, Korea isn't an anomaly, right? There are anti-refugee sentiments everywhere in the world. It's just that the refugee issue in Korea is much, much newer and people are less familiar with refugees as a category of migrants. Going on to how the refugee immigrant situation in Korea is relatively new. Have you ever gotten to a point in your research or like, I guess, like presenting it to other people? How would you go about, I guess, explaining what your main goals and purposes are to somebody who is unfamiliar as it is a relatively new topic? I'd say many of the scholars in the field of refugee studies are not really familiar with the Korean situation, right? Except for the fact that Korea hosts very small number of refugees, maybe. But this in itself is really puzzling, right? And intriguing, I think. 
why does Korea, despite being one of the richest democracies in the world and a signatory to the international refugee law, hosts so few refugees? compared to its Western counterparts. Why is it the case, right? So for students of international migration, the Korean case also evokes this question of why nation states accept refugees at all, right? For humanitarian purposes, but isn't that a little bit too naive, right? It evokes all these interesting questions. So usually situating Korea in this context draws a lot of attention from the scholarly community with Koreans. Yeah, like you said, refugees is still a very new issue, but because of the 2018 Yemeni quote, refugee crisis, most Koreans are now aware that Korea can, in fact, and Korea does host refugees, thanks to that big sensationalized affair. So it's a little bit easier for me to explain my research to Koreans and Korea scholars now because of that public event. So now you're postdoctoral. You've done so much research. So that means you have a lot of experience doing research. So how would you describe that research process? A lot of the times doing research requires a lot of patience, endurance, and I'm sorry to say, but an alone time. (laughs) So for my dissertation, I I visited Korea for about five to six months doing interviews and being a participant observer at various interesting sites, which was a lot of fun. But this is only a very small part of the whole research process. So at the end of the day, a bulk of research, analysis, and certainly writing takes place in front of your desk, in front of your computer, right? This can be frustrating, right? Especially if you or if I have a hard time turning my analysis into an academic contribution. And so to answer your question, I would say the research process is difficult (laughs) and it requires a lot of patience, but it's also kind of exhilarating when you can actually make that connection between your analysis and when you discover that you can actually contribute something to the existing literature. When you get that frustration in that writer's block, what works for you to be able to persevere? Yeah, uh, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people go about releasing that frustration. But for me, I turn to my colleagues and my advisors whom I can bounce off ideas. And so this is so this is why it's so important to have a a close group of friends and colleagues and advisors willing to read your work, right? Going to workshops, conferences and talks, right, by other people to see what they're doing is a good way to be to be inspired. And although myself, I myself am terrible at it, if you run into writer's block, then you should kind of go for a walk, close your computer to clear up your mind. But I'm, I have to admit, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm not very good at it at all. <laughs> Thank you for those insights on the research process. I know I'll definitely be considering the workshops and learning to take a break because I have a really bad habit of just powering through because I want to get the whole thing done, which is something I need to work on. But that's like a whole nother issue. (laughs) Another thing, I guess, um, the exhilarating part of your research process, and I guess the research process as a whole, having epiphanies and stuff. Is there anything, I guess, that's changed your view of like internet, like the world or I guess South Korea in particular, based off of what you have found? 
it has certainly changed my life in, in significant ways. It's affected my personality, my life principles, how I view the world in general, you know, researching how refugees and asylum seekers are treated by the state, right? That's what I do. Through this process, I've met a lot of wonderful people who work to enhance refugee and human rights, right? And I've learned so much from them, the activists who are so dedicated to their purpose, right? I've learned amazing things from them. And I'm so grateful for that, that experience. But you know, besides personal growth, you know, state, uh, studying state refugee relations also has helped me to expand my intellectual curiosity, right, on topics like how international norms spread into the domestic sphere, for example, right, the role of domestic bureaucrats or bureaucratic institutions in implementing international laws. Those, they sound a little mismatched, right? Domestic bureaucrats need to implement the international law. So I've become more interested in those kind of processes and the conflicts that arise from this process. Yeah, so it has benefited me both personally and academically. And talking to a lot of activists for your research topic, has that inspired you to maybe become an activist? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I don't think so, because I don't think I would be able to do the amazing work that a lot of these activists do on a daily basis. I think my interests lay elsewhere like connecting what's happening on the ground to the academic literature. And I, I, I think that is my job. Although just seeing what they do is definitely inspiring. And, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, that what if I took a different path, you know, <laughs> of activism? But I think my my calling <laughs> lies elsewhere. It's wonderful to hear you give some sort of insight on how your professional life evolves and what you do and don't choose to do based on your strengths and who you really feel you are. So thank you for that advice. And if we can pump you for a little more advice, <laughs> this is, after all, a product of our research seminar and we are throughout the year at, at different stages. So if I can describe briefly the stage we, we have arrived at now, our research fellows have turned in an annotated bibliography and and their lit review for their paper is due next Friday. <laughs> so they are busily working on that. And this is a time where everybody has an idea for their topic. Everybody's reading as much as they can get a hold of and trying to figure out how those ideas come together, which is the essential exercise of a lit review is connecting ideas. But this can be a very challenging time. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about any advice you have for our, our students at the at the outset of their research journey. Yes, the lit review is very important. <laughs> Good luck <laughs> next week. <laughs> so I want to say that when you start your research, you won't know everything, but that's completely okay. You might feel scared and <laughs> it's a daunting task, right? But this doesn't mean, absolutely doesn't mean that you have nothing to contribute, right? Like I said, it's natural to feel scared, but there are resources out there to help you with your research, right? So if you found your research question to be interesting, the chances are that others before you have found the same question to be interesting and probably have written about it, 
right? So that's where the lit review comes in, right? Read carefully about what has already been written. That's literally what lit review means. And I believe this is really the fastest way to understand how you can make your own original contribution to the existing literature. It might take you a long time. And to think that, oh, I have to read everything that has been written about this topic from the beginning of time. You don't have to necessarily think that. But knowing what people have said about the topic is very, very important. So spend some time on your lit review homework. Thank you very much for reinforcing that, that idea. I do hope you take that advice to heart. Yeah. And you were saying there is a struggle, I think, to you want to believe you can know everything and nobody can. And it's it's not because you're an undergraduate. It's because you're not a robot. You are not a database like Deep Blue um, who can hold that much information. Do you have any further thoughts on that? Yeah, so when you are a new researcher, you might feel like you either don't know anything or that you know everything, right? And neither is true, <laughs> right? And you might oscillate between those two feelings, right? One day you might feel like, I don't know anything. I have nothing to contribute to the to the field. Or another day you might feel like, you know, I, I'm here at University of Michigan. I'm taking Korean research class. I know how to speak Korean. And so I, I know how to do this re research, right? And you might oscillate between the two and that's okay, right? You just need to channel that energy <laughs> and find out what you know and what you don't know and how you can contribute what you know to the work that has already been done. So, Dr. McLean, what's next for you? What's next for me? Well, I'm going to spend my uh, wonderful year as a Korea Foundation postdoc at the NAM Center. I'm very happy and grateful for this opportunity. And I would like to spend this year polishing my dissertation into a book and maybe write a couple articles and send them to journals. I'm not sure what my next research project is going to be yet, but I've always been interested in, like I said, in Asian and Korean diaspora and the transnational connections that that arise from it. So for example, as a, as a side project, I wrote an article about Korean American social activism in the United States concerning comfort women. I don't know if you are aware of the issue, but comfort women refers to women who are forced into sexual slavery by the Imperial Japanese Army during and before the World War II. So the nature of the social movement that was happening in the 2000s and 2010s was fascinating to me. So some of the Korean American activists involved in this movement had maintained ties with Korea, their homeland, through their political activism, right? Despite having never been to Korea or despite having never returned to Korea for many decades, right? Their social movement in New York, Jersey, Washington, D.C., L.A., and actually even D Detroit and elsewhere that kind of aimed to raise awareness of comfort women in the United States. You know, in that process, they forged transnational ties with people in Korea and, and beyond. So <laughs> I think something along this topic <laughs> of migrant transnationalism might be at the center of my next project, but um, only time will tell. I still have to focus on my current project, but I don't think my interest in transnationalism will go away anytime soon.
That sounds excellent. We're so lucky to have you here this year and we can't wait to read the book. It sounds like it'll be very exciting to follow you for years to come. I'm sure we'll have research fellows coming up using your work in their research. Oh, it'll be my honor if that happens. The honor is ours. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Korea in Maize and Blue. How did you get here? If you're interested in more Nam Center programming, please check out our website and social media pages. I want to thank our first guest, Dr. Angela Yoonjung McLean, for joining us today. Tommy Kim for our theme song. You can follow him on Spotify. And the Shapiro Design Lab staff for technical support. This podcast was co-produced by myself and Kate Clemzito and edited by Heather Duval and Kara Billick. Please join us for our next episode featuring the director of the Nam Center for Korean Studies, Dr. Young Joo Ryu. This work is supported by the Strategic Research Institute Program for Korean Studies through the Ministry of Education of the Republic of Korea and the Korean Studies Promotion Service at the Academy of Korean Studies.